We're not talking about Taylor Swift. Stop it. <laughs> We're not cold opening with this. I know. I said stop it. <laughs> okay. I got to do the ad read. Knock it off. I'm not talking about your Taylor Swift obsession. Read this the week. ad. This week's episode. <laughs> stop it. This week's episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by the Southwest Indian Foundation Catholic Pueblo Revival Paid Internship Program, taking place this summer in Gallup, New Mexico. Check out the link in the show notes. If you are a young college-age man, this is a program you want to think about signing up. Yeah, we are going to talk more, Ed, in just a little while about, well, during during the commercial break about the St. Kateri Rosary Walk Paid Catholic Internship Program, because I uh, visited it this weekend, and, and it's amazing, and I can't wait to tell you about it, but we're not doing that right now. We're starting the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner, the one, the only, my Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. Hi, J.D. <laughs> Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm I'm feeling great. I'm feeling loose. I'm feeling limber. I'm ready to go. Let's make a show. Great. Let's make a show. And I here's what I want to start with. Some ca- some Catholic conversation that I want to talk about. Uh, we are recording this show on Thursday, the 15th of February. Yesterday was the Feast of St. Cyril and Methodius and other things too, wasn't it? Uh, yes. Yes, it was. Yes. It was many things yesterday. Where are you going with this? D- just let it just... Inviting you into the conversation before I talk about the thing that I want to talk about that happened yesterday morning. Oh, oh, I see. Yes, it was also Ash Wednesday and Valentine's Day for those who mark it. Okay, I, I'm sorry. I, I know you got a lot you want okay. to get through, and I have a very particular issue I intend to hijack the show and make it all about. So, you know, I'm just I'm treading carefully here. Okay, so I just here's what I want to talk about, and it's a serious conversation that I want to have with you, Ed, because look, I love. Um, and I, I'm nervous. I don't, I'm at this point where I want to talk about something, but I don't want to have an intersection between my like personal life and the show in a way that, you know, is going to make anybody frustrated. But the fact of the matter is I'm a person, I live a life and I have a podcast. And I think the people who are in my life in one way or another know that I love the Catholic school that my kids attend. I I love it. Good. I'm so grateful for it. I don't think it'll offend anyone. (laughs) Not yet. I'm so grateful for it. Here it comes. It's a great school. The curriculum is uh, in many ways top notch. And, you know, I have two, as you know, children um, with Down syndrome who would not be accepted in many Catholic schools and who are like very, very much welcomed in our in our Catholic school. And there's a great curriculum for them and they they have great like support and they're truly beloved and truly a part of the community. So I want to start out by saying that I love our Catholic school. I'm a big supporter of it and a big fan of it. Every time, Ed, I go to a school mass at this school or nearly any other school in America, I walk out a trad. Every single time I walk out a liturgical trad. And I was telling you about this yesterday. I Look, again, I love Catholic schools. I love the idea of Catholic schools. But school masses remind me. Masses full of school children who who are in the school for the sake of being formed intellectually, humanly, spiritually, and part of spiritual formation is liturgically, school masses remind me of the grave responsibility that the church has to form people, young people especially, children especially, liturgically, to form them, to have their eyes raised to heaven in the holy sacrifice of the mass, and and for the mass really to be the source and summit of their lives— and I Ed, I want in school masses what 
Vatican II says we should have. Like I, I go to school masses and they very often, it's like a four, you know, it's like just hymns, no antiphons, English only, kind of like children's hymns. And I often think school masses often remind me of how frequently we are, and this is not just about my school because I see this in other places, how frequently we are cheated out of the sense of the sacred and the mysterious in the context of the mass. Do you know what I mean? Like when I walk out of school masses, I think, man, kids would have loved that if it had been otherworldly and mysterious and it might've drawn them more deeply into the faith. Wow. Okay. So we're going to talk about this. Yeah. I Yesterday I, when I started talking about this on the phone to you, you said, hey, save it for the podcast, buddy. I know. So I you didn't, can't be too surprised almost, that we were going to talk about this. Are you kidding me? Uh, the thing I would, I'm always most surprised about I was talking on the show is the thing you said we were going to talk about on the show oh, previously. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair uh, enough. I didn't think you were actually going to go here. Uh, so, all right. Uh, a couple of questions to start with. First of all, is your, co- I mean, you've, you've made this comment, this declaration of war on the common liturgical life of American Catholicism, um, you, you've made it in the context of a school mass. Is your criticism, strictly speaking, proper to school masses, or is that just the the mass that you went to yesterday that got you thinking this way? Is this no school masses? Are you saying there are there's a particular species of liturgical practice in this country that is the school mass, or is this not just sort of a flavor of parochial liturgical practice in the United States? And it so happens that they often have schools attached to them, which is a good thing and a sign of health. In the church, which is a good thing and a sign of health. School masses often remind me, I think because there are children there and I, I remember. Well, there should be children in every mass. There should be children in every mass. Where do you keep mass, them in the ordinary mass? <laughs> I think because of the school mass, the church is filled with children. Of her, our sacred responsibility to form Children, the, the the I'm reminded at school masses of the profound opportunity to form children who are reborn in wonder, as it were, who are oriented towards the mystery of the mysteries, um, who are drawn into the profound theodrama of the cross, which is presented to us at the mass. And so, school masses. When I experience school masses having missing opportunities, leaving behind opportunities for really beautiful liturgical celebration, which draws from the mystery, you know, from the from the customs and traditions of the church's 2,000 years. When I experience school masses, that seem very much like ordinary sort of banal parish, banally offered and celebrated parish masses. I am reminded, again, of what a missed opportunity is. I okay, am so reminded- you're now suggesting that a school mass should actually hold itself to a higher standard than what you're calling the banal, ordinary- Here, here's, what, here's what it is, Ed. Here's where I am right now. I have long been liturgically a sort of reform of the reform guy. I have long said, look, Sacrosanctum Concilium says very important things about liturgy, very important things about full active conscious participation in the liturgy. And in the wake of the council, we got sort of felt banner liturgy, which had a very uh, unreasonable and unfortunate emphasis on what we will call horizontal participation rather than mystical participation. And the initial implementation of Sacrosanctum Concilium actually ignored many things in the text, like Sacrosanctum Concilium's own emphasis on Latin and chant and drawing from the patrimony of the church. And I have long thought, well, if we just, we will get through that. The pendulum went one way and the pendulum will come back another way. And we will eventually implement Sacrosanctum Concilium as it's written. But then, but sometimes 
I find myself wondering, maybe, maybe not, Ed, maybe the notion, maybe the sort of reform of the reform notion that the liturgy can be the thing that I think Sacrosanctum Concilium calls it to be, which is celebrated reverently, celebrated beautifully, celebrated with the antiphons, with the use of Latin, which I think has, has, has a great deal of importance, celebrated with an ars celebrande of humility, uh, of quaking humility to the profundity of the mystery at the altar, and which music which supports that. And liturgical choices which support that, you know, sometimes I think maybe the notion that we'll get there, that we will have a sort of um, liturgical renaissance, uh, is is is, opti- is too optimistic, is wishful thinking. Now, on the other hand, I think there are lots of people who are listening to this who would say, no, buddy, we're in a liturgical renaissance. The reform of the reform is working. More and more young priests and th- our listeners do read Sacrosanctum Concilium and the subsequent te- liturgical texts and take them seriously. And we had the revised translation and the church is moving towards a more reverent and solemn and beautifully um, celebrated liturgy. And you just need to see it. And, and maybe that's true. But I do sometimes wonder if we've picked up along the way kind of congregationalist liturgical, paraliturgical practices from our Protestant brothers and sisters, and so implemented them in our customary practice, celebration of the liturgy in the United States, that we're never going to get out of them. I do sometimes wonder, are we ever going to get out of them? Uh, I, I I think there's a, a risk of that, particularly in, in this country. Uh, I would say that I think Sacrosanctum Concilium, of all of the conciliar documents, has been the most consistently misapplied from its very beginning and i'm using misapplied loosely i mean i I would say abused is probably a better word uh, and deliberately abused i i don't want to call it a stillborn document of the council because i don't think that is entirely true or entirely fair but i think there were efforts for that it's a beautiful phrase though or a harrowing phrase i suppose yeah um I, i i identify with all of your criticisms I don't identify with all of your remedies necessarily. Your critique seems to be about a lack of reverence, a lack of awe, a lack of mystery, a lack of solemnity, a lack of a sense of the divine. And I agree with you that the... the Yeah, the, but I also want Latin chants and antiphons very specifically because Sacrosanctum Concilium says exactly. I have a right to them. Yes, I, I myself don't, and I, this is where I'm going to get in trouble again, <laughs> but that's fine. I don't care. I don't. I mean, Sacrosanctum Concilium says they're good, and you have a right to them. And I think if the Church, in a constitution of an ecumenical council, says that they're good and we should have them, then we should have them because that's what the Church says. For myself, I don't. I don't make the knee jerk association of well, antiphons in Latin make you more holy, make the worship rightly more rightly ordered, just because. The church celebrated the Eucharist with reverence and holiness for centuries before we had Baroque liturgy. And, you know, it wasn't any less holy. It wasn't any less miraculous. It was, you know, so I, 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 I instinctively pull back from the, the sort of line of argumentation that says there was no liturgy before we had pipe organs. And it's just like, that's, that's just not true. You know, the, the, the liturgical life of the church, the Eucharistic mystery did not begin at Trent. You know, we, there, there was a world before that. And believe it or not, we managed to have the sacraments. I I make that point just because that's my personal reaction to the case you make, which is to identify a problem that I absolutely agree with, a tone of worship, an anthropocentrism to the liturgy rather than the deocentrism, all of that. And to say, you know, but then I was like, well, the answer isn't, I, as far as I'm concerned, 
organ music and Latin and antiphons. Those things can all be lovely, but you do, it's perfectly possible to have a horizontal liturgy in which everyone checks out and nobody actually acknowledges the divine and still have great music and you can do it in whatever language you want. That you know, What we need is not primarily a reform of externals. We need a reform of internals. We need a reform of our entire approach to liturgy as an actual encounter with the divine that you articulate a desire for, and I think you are right, the church to be assiduous in instructing all Catholics and especially children in approaching the liturgy with, I don't think you exactly said fear and trembling, but that-, that I think I did actually. Okay. Um, if you I think did, I said I'd, quaking awe. Ah, okay. Well, okay. Quaking awe, fear and trembling. I mean, you know, again, you're, you're, you're borrowing imagery from Scandinavian Protestants there. I just point that out to you. That's, that's Kierkegaard. Um, but that's fine. What? I, quaking awe? Fear and Trembling. It's his, his most famous book. It's gr- scripture, brother. I know. He takes it from that. You, don't, you okay, know who so Soren I'm, Kierkegaard is, and you've read Fear and Trembling. Don't start. Yeah, but I'm not I'm not filtering my scripture through Kierkegaard. I'm, mm, I'm, I'm taking you? it from St. Paul. No, you're not filtering your scripture. <laughs> you're, I'm, I'm wondering if you're filtering your approach to liturgy. Um, anyway, I am more concerned with the lack of internal disposition towards the liturgy and think if we can if we fix that, then the externals become about what I think they should be and what Pope Benedict, when he was Cardinal Ratzinger, routinely argued they should be, which is the things that are oriented best for the focusing of our devotion in the Eucharist and our encounter with God in the sacrament. And that, you know, at first- That's so interesting because you seem to be saying, I would like more people in the church to have an, a, a deeper, effective interior conversion, and their so doing will have profound liturgical effect. And and I see that. I think the point I'm making, and by the way, I don't think Latin is holier, although I'll talk about why I think, why I'd like to have what the council says after this. I would but, also like to have what the um, council says. It's just I'd like it because the council says it rather than because I think it's necessarily going well, to be instructive I would like in it because I think the council, I'd like it because I think the council is right. You know what I mean? But I'd but like let to me believe the council about, is right. We've never tried what the council said, so we don't really, it's an unproven <laughs> thesis at this point. <laughs> okay, well let me let me just say uh so you you're saying effectively I would like to see people have, have uh, deeper effective interior conversions and those deeper effective interior conversions would lead to a greater sort of um a more reverent and more beautiful expression of the liturgy. And I think that's true and the, part of the reason I think that's true is because I have experienced that in my experience of, and this is where I'm going to get in trouble, my experience of the church's charismatic renewal, my experience at places like Steubenville, where interior conversions of a small group of people, and look, Steubenville has all kinds of problems now that we're not getting into right now, but I would just say, where the interior conversions of a small group of people at things like the Duquesne rally led to more uh, fervently and um, uh, and piously celebrated liturgy, even if the accidents of that are not your particular cup of tea. I don't think anyone can doubt the fervency of it. Okay. But what I'm saying is sort of the opposite when it comes to the formation of uh, children, especially, which is that the Ars Celebrante of the minister and the liturgical choices made with regard to um, music and language and instrument and all these things that you sort of play are the things which might affect that interior conversion. So I want beautiful, 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 beautiful school masses because I think that is more likely to turn my son, the heart of my son to God in in wonder and admiration. I, I hear you. You know, I, I, I'd like to propose something to you. Do you think, though, that you're starting at basic principles by saying we need to have better, as you put it, Ars Chalorandi, 
um, and that this will help affect. I would suggest that the way in which mass is often celebrated in a this is a generalization, and lots of people are going to be annoyed at me for generalizing. But oh, we're having a conversation about liturgy. I know we're taking off everybody right now, brother. We just if, have to lean if, into as it. As you opened this conversation by so doing, you can you can identify a sort of, as you put it, banal style of liturgical practice which you might call suburban parochial. I will come to you in the silence. You see, now th- here's my hottest. This is my hottest liturgical take that always gets me in trouble. I think hymns are Protestant by their nature. I don't like hymns. Oh yeah, uh, yes, you shouldn't I, have I hymns. Concur. I was just thinking. sing psalms no, or I'm, sing nothing. I'm, that's my that's my hot take. This is what I'm getting at. But, and sing them in Latin as the Lord intends. I think well, I don't know why you got to be such a modernist. <laughs> sing them in Hebrew. Be trapped. Okay, like sorry, they're actually ahead. far Please more continue. beautiful in the Hebrew. But that, that's neither here nor there. Um. I would suggest that you're you're starting one step, up, you're starting one floor above the actual foundation. I would trace the real banalization of the liturgy in the sort of quote unquote quotidian suburban parochial practice, if that's the label we're putting on it. Isn't this really fundamentally a root of bad architecture? Yeah, to so, well, I, I think so. I think but the I'd architecture like informs the liturgy way more than people ordinarily give it credit for. That it's almost impossible to have really good, beautiful liturgy. That ha- I mean, you can have really good, beautiful liturgy on the front of a jeep in the middle of a war zone. Don't get me wrong, but I'm saying of the kind that affects the thing you're talking about, which is instructive. It's pedagogical. It's catechetical mm-hmm. for the assembly. That needs to be supported by context. It needs to be supported by a sacred space that is designed and oriented towards the rightful celebration of that liturgy. And so much American ecclesiastical architecture of the 20th century is ugly and Protestant and theater seating and poorly yeah. designed with rubbish acoustics, over-reliant on amplified sound and microphones everywhere, and God help us, big screen TVs in places. I mean, these places look like mini mega churches a lot of the time, and you just and, can't and you have beautiful what? liturgy there. And you know what? Um, uh, one place where I saw it, I wonder what you would think about this, is um, d- did you read Ed- Edgar's story about the parish at the top of the world yes. last week or whatever? Yes. Did you see the pictures of the interior of that church I at did. the top of the I've world? I've seen and- a church just like it. I th- I was going to say that struck me as being something which is not not even sort of ne- the kind of neo the ordinary neo gothic thing that we tend to do when we want to make beautiful churches in America right now something which um, was very different from even our American kind of ecclesial architectural revival but which struck me as quite beautiful and which I suspected might seem quite beautiful to you as well it is a, it is I mean I read Edgar's story it's a neo catechumenal orientation of a parish church which they built from oh, scratch yes. I saw one of those in Madrid and I've seen one of those in Florence. Jerusalem, probably. No, Florence, uh, I think is where I saw it. Um, because before I went into Catholic journalism and moved to Washington, D.C., I used to you know, have a life. And I used to go to places like Madrid and Florence and stuff for weekends and see people. And you know, now I've turned into a hermit in my own office. But that's fine. I'm happier now. Um, <laughs> but no, but, but again, I, at least as it was explained to me when I was given a tour of one of those places, I think it was the one in, in Florence. Um it, it's an intentional setting. It's not theater seating Protestant style to focus on the preaching or whatever. That the idea is that it um, it focuses the attention on the radical proximity of the Eucharist. That it is oriented in, and you know the the sort of iconography around the top is um, there's a there's a word they use for it and I can't remember what it is. It's like mystical crown or something. But it is it's the mysteries of the rosaries in a giant in giant icono- iconographic form. 
so that you know in the same way that we have in you know gothic style of um, church design you have stained glass windows that are meant to you know focus the mind on prayer and elevate the eye and all of that other sort of stuff it's the same thing and this is what i mean about you know you don't need to do it one way that you can right, have right. that it's about a, a setting that is oriented towards focusing everyone on what matters which is the encounter with god in the sacrament and bad architecture can impede that Every bit as easily so. as good architecture can facilitate it. I think that's absolutely right. I think that's well said, and I think it's something. I remember when I was a JCL student. Um, this is when I got sort of what are the kids? Is it red pill, black pill? I forget what. I don't know what kind of pills. I, the, the the pill you take when you get suddenly the purple pill is Nexium. It's for heartburn, I think, or reflux. Oh, um, the little blue pill. You know, this is a family show. Uh, I don't know about the other colors of pills. Okay. Whatever the pill is it takes that sort of opens Advil your eyes and makes you angry. I was, I was sort of, I was radicalized like Tucker Carlson on a Russian holiday, um, <laughs> in uh, in in a in in JCL school when one of the was I forget it was the McManus or the Provost lecture one year at the School of Canon Law at the Catholic University of America, the best school in the world. Um, go Cardinals! Uh, Duncan Strike from Notre Dame came and gave a talk on sacred architecture and the relationship between sacred architecture mm -hmm. and pedagogy and catechesis and liturgy. And it was fabulous. And he was, I mean, Duncan Stroik is also an incredibly engaging public speaker, so that didn't hurt. Yeah. yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I walked out of it as like, yes, this is what I've been, you know, I've been noticing and failing to, you know, connect the dots on. It's like, of course you have bad banal liturgy if you have bad banal architecture that focuses on all the mm -hmm. wrong things and orients the assembly to exactly the wrong things to focus on. And, you know, this mm -hmm. all makes sense now. And, and so I think really, you know, I hate to say it, but we're, we need, I mean, it's also a sad reality. I think that in many places, you know, we're looking at the consolidation of parishes, many dioceses are filing for bankruptcy. You're seeing, you know, church buildings being alienated and relegated and eventually sold on or destroyed or whatever. And it seems to me in a lot of places that we're doing it to all the wrong churches. Like we're preserving the, the sort of mid-century modern theater seating places where you can't hear anything, even with a microphone shoved up father's nose. But we're we're dynamiting and selling off the contents of, you know, all of the old beautiful parish churches that were built with a mind for liturgy, and the new ones that we build are just aping the mid-century moderns. And I think it's I think it's a shame we're we're tearing down all the wrong parishes in our in our retrenchment in a, in many places. I think, and I I think that's really sad. Architecture, I agree. You you, you change the architecture, you change you change the liturgy, in uh, in significant ways, and um, and I think that's really important. It is a it is a, a physical sense of sort of raising the sights, uh, our sights. But let me talk about another that you and I were talking about yesterday that I've been just reflecting on, and it's this: What if part of the banality of contemporary liturgy of the of the frequent contemporary liturgical experience is a desire, uh, it, a, a misplaced good, a sort of mi disordered good, a desire um, when there is a desire for the church to be welcoming or for the church to be evangelical, there is sometimes a mistaken. Um, a desire for the for the liturgy to be completely accessible, for the liturgy to sort of be the thing, the the welcoming point for so called seekers, people who don't practice the faith or who have no effective faith or something like that. Uh. Um, and 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 what a mistake I think that is, sort of historically, theologically, and liturgically. I I I immediately agree with you. The liturgy should not be open. Liturgy is not open. 
They're, they're, well, historically, right? Latin, I mean, think about liturgy in the early that is, church. You should, you should, right? Think about liturgy in the early church, right? I think um, about liturgy in a little other frame of reference. I think I know, right? And in the early church, when when was a person sort of fully initiated into the Eucharistic sacrifice? When they the were taught the Latin Eucharist. and given the keys to the pipe organ, right? <laughs> no, 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 no. Be serious. Okay, here. you were fully initiated when you when you had been baptized, and after that point, you were allowed admission to the Eucharist. Yeah, right. And what did it take to be baptized? Years and years and years, years of and years and years of formation. You had to have, right? you know, what we now today call godparents, but back then these we, are the, these are the baptismal sponsors. Like the whole idea of baptismal sponsors isn't this cute idea of like name the rogish uncle who you think will give good birthday presents or whatever. Mm-hmm. That it was the one who actually said, "No, I'm vouching for this person." Vouched in for the community for the sincerity of your desire to be a Christian rather than to be some marauder who would enter into the community and then sell you out to the Romans to the who would then right, you know, exactly. set fire to you and uh-huh. feed you to lions. Yeah. But the but a person who had been converted effectively, a person who had heard the gospel and wanted to give their life to Jesus Christ, so to speak, would spend in the early church the the the, the, the immediate successors of the apostles would spend you know extraordinary amount of time in in scrutinies in periods of testing of of both catechesis and 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 testing the 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 integrity of their life and the probity of their life and their sincerity of their desire to live as a christian and and then subsequent to this intense period of formation would be admitted into the Christian community and then admitted into the and thus admitted into the Eucharistic sacrifice and we have this little vestige of this now where We've dismissed catechumens after the liturgy of the word, you know, on Sundays sometimes, and then they go and ostensibly have RCIA or something. I don't know what they do. But, you know, we have this little vestige of this that just reminds us that there was a time when the Eucharistic mystery was reserved for the Christian community. Well, it's because the Um, Eucharist doesn't make sense if you aren't catechized. And it's not possible for it to make sense if you aren't catechized. You know what you get if you attend a Eucharist uncatechized? You get a Protestant sharing service. Yeah, or, you know, There's you may see – There's a guy see, or a gal up on top, top they've got some, some grape things. juice and some bread, and, you know, this is some nice words. Mm-hmm. You, you, right. It's not possible to intuit the full depth of the sacramental mystery. You have to be initiated. I think there is something to the sense, which I think is largely lost, I think is mistakenly jettisoned sometimes, to the sense of the liturgy as somewhat unknowable, un- unpossessable – that the that that what the priest does, although we fully and actively and consciously participate, although we offer our sacri- or the sacrifice of our lives in union with the Eucharistic sacrifice of the altar, that there is something profound, transcendent, and almost unknowable that we would hardly dare to look upon it, or or hardly dare to, to pretend to comprehend it. That it is beyond us in some way. That we humble ourselves to something which we cannot fully understand. And the reason why, actually, I like that the Second Vatican Council says, you know, Latin is to be retained and the vernacular is to be used only in sort of situations of necessity and in pastoral circumstances, but that Latin is the language of the of the church's liturgy. The reason I like that is because I think the use of, of Latin, now this is not how, why the church began offering liturgies in Latin. It was the lingua franca, franca of the time and, and all that, but I think there's something to a sacred language, a sacral language, which reminds us especially in our contemporary world when everything is comprehensible, um, which reminds us of the transcendent mystery of the thing in front of us. There's something to coming into something which I fully can't understand. And even the resp- even if all we preserve is the responses in Latin, right? Even if all we preserve is the memorial acclamation and the Agnus Dei and the, um, the Sanctus, there's something about 
entering into a worship with another with this other language that's not used in our everyday. Now, you and I use Latin every day, but that's not ordinarily used in our everyday that reminds us of the transcendent profundity of what we're doing. And that's why I'm actually glad that not just that the council said it because the council said it and it should be done, but because I think that in our contemporary time, reading the signs of the time, so to speak, as Gaudi Mitzvah says, there's something powerful about having this sort of transcendent sacral language that we use for worship. I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> um, I think that's, I honestly think that might be because your daughter is a baby. A toddler. I think the older, I feel this more and more, the older my kids get, that I want them, that it's I don't just want so Im- my daughter to have an understanding of the sacrament that drifts too far towards basically Judaic temple worship. That um, Do you think there's no connection between- No, there is for sure the connection. I said of the mass and Judaic temple worship. No, there absolutely is. There's a vital connection. I'm saying I don't want it to drift too far that way. That you know you can't there there look the two models of the of Eucharistic liturgy are the are, are the temple worship and mm-hmm. the Last Supper. I don't want to lose the cynical entirely. Is my point. I think that there is there is a danger of um, drawing too much of a ring around the sacredness of liturgical practice, where it basically becomes too other from our life. It's like, oh, you go to the holy place and you do the holy stuff, and what happens outside of the church is, you know, that's a different thing. I'm in, I'm in the world now, and it's fine. But what I do, I do get thing, that, and I, I, that's not, you know, that's something I think needs to be needs to be guarded against because um, th- there is a there is a way in which the kind of you know sacral language and you know careful packaging and preservation of the act of divine worship can lead to a radical distancing of us from God in the act of worship when the Eucharist is in fact an act of radical proximity. And yeah, I, don't, I, I do understand I think that, that is important to keep track of. It's one of the reasons why I hate bad um, ecclesiastical architecture so much is because then you end up with banal liturgy in a poor setting that focuses on all the wrong things. So you're both physically separated from the Eucharist and then theologically distant from the act of worship as well. And that's what drives me crazy is, you know, the Eucharist is fundamentally an act of radical proximity with the divine, which is, as you said, well, you didn't say you danced around it, but the word is mystery. It is a mystery. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It is, and and the, to, you know, I almost to fully comprehend the mystery. You can't fully comprehend it. That is the nature of the thing. But it, in a way, I think um, you can, you can over- do the mystery aspect of it by by making it too much of its own complete self-contained universe, at which point you miss the thing which makes it mysterious, which is God became man, God is present in the flesh, God, you know, God is here in the sacrament, God is, you know, all of these things come to inform and sacralize our sacralize the created world in a way that is, you know, <laughs> a scandal to every other religion and philosophy in the whole of human history. And if you if you reify it too much and put it, you know, it's too over there, it's too in a box, it's too separate from everything else, our messy human reality, then I think you're losing something very important and beautiful about the Eucharist. I do, I do agree with you about that, and I think that's beautifully said and well said. I, I do, and I think you're right that it's a it's a it's a ba- it's a weighing exercise between these two sort of ways of perceiving the Eucharist, and part of the weighing exercise is I think considering. Um, the culture in which the, the liturgy is celebrated, and um, and the the, th- the elements of Christianity which most which might most need to be emphasized, or something like that, or might most be most resonantly emphasized. And and I do think, from my perspective, very often I think we have so much cynical already 
we have so much I don't so think we do though. I think we have more McDonald's than Cynical. That's the problem. Yeah, okay. I I it becomes I understand a drive what you're saying. Everybody get in line, everybody gets the thing, everybody back to your seat. It's you know. I do understand what you're saying. Yeah, that there is truth to that. It's I just mean culturally, and, like, you know, everybody in the line. The notion That's, of a God who is not only to be known intimately, but a God who is, it's no big deal to know God intimately if you don't understand the, this God who you know in, in, intimately is the omnipotent creator of the universe. I totally agree and with you there. Otherwise, it's like, okay, cool, Jesus, you know. Well, no, I um, totally agree with you there. Jesus is, this Jesus is the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity, eternally transcendent and creator of all things and all and, and, and powerful in all ways. And um, I think that there has been so much of an emphasis in recent decades in this country on emphasizing God, our buddy, that nobody wants to be buddies with him anymore. If, if it's, you know, there, there, there was such a sort of post-conciliar sort of emphasis on, you know, God, your pal, that, if if Jesus is just sort of this pal who's hanging around all the time, it's not that interesting to be friends with him. Oh, I totally agree um, with that. I totally agree. Yeah, and so, but the maybe radical the point proximity should come th- with and inspire a measure of the fear and trembling of which you were speaking. Right, early. and maybe the point I'm making is I think it would be there's some value to the liturgy in a culture in which God's immediacy is often cheapened and commodified to understand God's omnipotence as a precondition to appreciating God's intimacy. I would agree with that. Now, again, all, all of this is weighing exercise, right? So there's different answers and different thoughts about that. But you said before, you want the you want liturgy to do the thing that the council says that liturgy should do because the council says it. And that's good enough for me. Um, he, here's the problem, though. And we were sort of talking about this. And here's why I say I feel so sort of discouraged about the reform of the reform is that um, what happens that if you go to your pastor, with, with exceptions to pillar listeners and things like this, but... The risk of going to your pastor and saying, hey, I love it here, but for anybody, I love it here, but, you know, I really wish that the liturgy was more like what the council intended and um, Latin and antiphons and auto, maybe even auto orientum. Um, the risk is that the the reason why I think that the Protestantization of, of American liturgy is, is going to be very difficult to extract is that right now, I think a person who's sort of saying, hey, I wish we could do things a little bit differently – too often runs the risk of seeming like some sort of extremist, you know what I mean? Or hobbyist or something mm-hmm. like that. That um, I don't have that problem in my local parish, which is nice. No, you don't. And and I, there are many, many, many good things about my parish. But I was having a conversation with a local priest, not my own pastor, but a pastor, you know, I, the parishes around me are sort of large suburban parishes. And, uh, and, and this guy said to me, you know, I don't understand why so many young families are going to the uh, to the Latin Mass parish nearby. There's a Latin Mass parish nearby, and I said, "Well, it's because of that screen that you have that shows the lyrics to the hymns." Oh, and oh, you know, oh, burn because, it down, burn it down. Right? This is a very orthodox Nefos guy. This est. is a very, very orthodox guy. But I said it's because of the screen, and it's because you don't get your thurible out often enough. You know, it hardly darkens the day. And I love me a good you know, thurible, but the, uh, and it's because yeah. it's because. It's because of these hymns, you know what I mean? It's because this feels so this there's nothing about this that feels mysterious or transcendent and people are looking for that and the guy was like, "No, no, no, I don't think it's that. I think it's 
you know, Trump or COVID or something. And I was like, <laughs> no, I don't think it's Trump or COVID. I think it's this. Um, and so you run the risk of sounding that way. So that's why I, I sometimes look, I think a lot of our listeners would say, and our clerical listeners would say, actually, JD, we're, we, we're right with you. And you should see the great things we're doing in your parish. And I, and I know the great things that you're doing in your parish. And I so appreciate them. But I do think on the whole, we are not in a reform of the reform renaissance. And I no, we're in a civil war over the reform. Right. Yeah. But I mean, actually, it's just, are it's, we or has it? No, it, we are. Know. We are. It's just that there, it's, it's, it's a very large one. There are, there, it's not two sides. It's, it's a very splintered and factional conflict. And there's a lot of no man's land. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Um, in many cases, it's a, it's a guerrilla war, <laughs> I, I would say. Yeah. Um, I'm, I, I'm lucky in that that is there not. There are a my, lot of reform of the reform bishops, you know, and all this, are. but I, I just, I don't know. I, 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 maybe it just seems to me to be too slow going. I get to be, I get, I, I'm really lucky. This is why you always tell me I should move to Denver. You should move to where I live because I have that rarest <laughs> of things that you constantly bang on about wanting and that it doesn't exist and it's not possible to exist. And so we should revisit all of the way we think about these things. I have a parish that is both territorial and intentional. Everyone moved there by intention. We will be uh, right back after this word from our sponsor. And this week's episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to us, as you know, by the Southwest Indian Foundation's Catholic Pueblo Revival Paid Internship Program in Gallup, New Mexico. The Southwest Indian Foundation's Catholic Pueblo Revival Paid Internship Program in Gallup, New Mexico. And um, this is a very cool thing. It's an invitation to young college-age men to Go spend the summer in um, basically Navajo Nation in northwestern New Mexico, building an incredibly beautiful rosary walk using traditional methods, learning how to make like adobe bricks and then carry them and mortar them and stucco them and uh, and build something beautiful from them uh, in order to create a place of prayer and conversion in, in an incredible uh, pine and pinion valley in, in, in northwestern New Mexico. Yeah, you went there recently. I did. Which I'm annoyed at you this about. Weekend. I'm very angry about this. <laughs> we had went, made an agreement. We were going to find a time in the summer. I had a whole slate of things I wanted to do in the area. We were going to go and see this thing together when it was under construction. And you were just like, yeah, I could do that. Or I could just get on a plane and go and see it myself and Nanny and Nanny Boo Boo. Like, we, we can go in the summer. I'd like to go back very much. Um, so I went this weekend to Gallup, New Mexico, to the, to the Diocese of Gallup, New Mexico, in part because we're advertising for this thing and, the, and our advertisers, our sponsors, the Southwest Indian Foundation invited me to come down and see it. And uh, it is, this rosary walk is at the retreat center of the Diocese of Gallup, which um, is just effectively building this in partnership with the Southwest Indian Foundation. And it is at a, a beautiful sort of... Um, it's a canyon just filled with these twisting and overlapping paths, which surround a center area where eventually a chapel will be built and a large statue of Our Lady of Guadalupe. And uh, along these paths are these adobe shrine structures, which are made, you know, with these traditional bricks and then stuccoed and 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 they'll have beautiful sort of devotional niches in them with with statues. And it's an incredibly beautiful place to pray and to spend time. Um, I I would love, honestly, if I didn't have, you know, a job and uh, children and a wife and a bad back, probably, I would love, you know, if I wasn't 40, I would love to spend the summer there working with the, the invitation is basically come spend a, uh, come spend the summer with a team of guys doing something beautiful, living in community with them, um, praying in community with them and, uh, and building something beautiful in, in a part of the country, which is unlike any other. And for a people, the the Catholics of the Diocese of Pueblo, who are 
Native American uh, indigenous Catholics with their own unique sort of culture and uh, and who are really very welcoming. I mean, people when I went down there, people were just incredibly welcoming to me, and um, and, and I, I felt just edified to be in their community. And this is an invitation to go down there and then make money over the summer doing it. I'm I'm deeply jealous. I. I want to go. I want to see this thing. I've seen the pictures that you took while you were down there. They looked amazing. It looks beautiful. It is exactly the kind of thing I would jump at the chance to do. In fact, I did very less glamorous in a far less interesting place um, to construct something much less impressive or lasting stuff when I was a college kid. Like This is the sort of program which I did do when I was in college, only this is like the the idealized version of it, like go to the coolest place and make the coolest kind of thing in the coolest possible way. Um, I just, yeah, I can't think of a better way of, of spending a summer. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing looking. I, I want to go and see it. I can't wait to see it. Yeah. They have bought like, it's so cool. So the, 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 at the retreat center out there, they have bought like, you know, they were trying to figure out how to bring in bricks, Adobe bricks that are traditionally made and it's expensive to bring them in. And, and so they were just like, well, let's get the brick making equipment and learn how to make it ourselves. And let's learn how to stucco these things ourselves. And and then the really cool thing is that some of the finishing work will be done by incredible artisans uh, who come from around the country who are, who, who are trained, you know, generation after generation in some cases um, in indigenous um, architectural modes and, um, and, and building skills and, and handicrafts and things like that, who will do a lot of the finish work. And so, um, they're not throwing this up, right? They're building this to last with the idea that this is a thousand year project. And uh, to be a part of the work of a thousand year project for the glory of God, gosh, I'd advertise for that even if we they weren't our sponsor. You know what I mean? It's just cool. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, they were, they should have just sent us pictures. <laughs> they didn't need to book out space. We'd have like, but pictures honestly don't do it justice. I went down there and took pictures and they honestly don't do it justice. It's, it, you got to go down there. If, if you're a young man, org. fill out an application, spend the summer doing this because you'll love it. I mean, pictures don't do it justice because you, the smell of the high desert, the the, the, the vegetation, the sights, the again, the people, it's just an incredible place. And I think you'll love being there. Ed, we are back. And um, uh, we I would like to talk, uh, if we can, about something which happened in the life of the church this week. You know, the Pontifical Academy for Life uh, had a meeting in Rome this week. And um, do you follow much of the goings-on of the Pontifical Academy for Life? I, I have in the past taken a keen and forensic interest in the president of the Pontifical Academy for Life, but uh, yes, no, I can't have. say I follow the ordinary business of the academy much these days. Okay, so the Pontifical Academy for Life uh, had a meeting this week. And, um, and during the course of that meeting, one of the the relatively newer members of the Pontifical Academy for Life, uh, who was appointed to the Academy in October of 2022, so now a year and a half ago, um, was challenged. She's an economist. She's an Italo-American economist named Mariana Question. Mazzucca. Yes? When you say Italian-American economist, do you mean she is Italian and American by dual nationality? Do you mean she is... Italian who then moved and has a professional practice in the United States, or do you mean like Sopranos Italian American, where she's just from New Jersey and but she talks with her hands and what? What does that mean? <laughs> what are you asking me about the regat for? Just put it in lasagna. Yeah, I yeah, know. She was born in Rome, and if I okay. if I remember so she's correctly, she she's Italian, Italian but okay. she is in some way. Just now wanted to. I just wanted to have clear in my mind I as I'm forming a mental that... picture of this person. I wanted to know what we were talking about. 
I think it's possible that if I recall correctly, one of her parents might be an Italian and the other an American, or maybe she was born in Rome to Italian parents and then moved to America or something. She she has both connections to Italy and America. Okay. I think she could reasonably play for either national team if she had a sport. Oh, actually, that's um, that's actually very easy. I mean, I think it, there's. I, I think yeah, because gen- didn't Mike Piazza play for Italy in the World Baseball Classic, and he's like just Red Sox American Italian Grand, grandparents. I think is the generally accepted international standard for claiming nationality for sporting teams. If you have a grandparent mm. who was a card carrying, or I, you know, I think there are also American born, you know, former NBA players who have gone to play ball in uh, China and then ended up sort of naturalizing in some way that allowed them to play on the Chinese national team, if I, if I remember correctly. We have people who have defected to China over basketball? And you don't know that basketball players towards the end of their career tend to go to China and make a bunch of money for a couple oh, of years? Oh, sure. I mean, yeah, football, sorry, soccer players do that too. I didn't know that they like took Chinese citizenship, became card mem- card carrying communists and, rep- and you know, wore the, wore the stars and the red banner in international tournaments though. Okay. So um, Kyle Anderson of the Minnesota Timberwolves represented China at the Is Feeble it Chi-Com? World- Kyle Anderson of the Minnesota Timberwolves? Is it... Oh my God! Well, let's see. Let's see what the let's see what the uh, circumstances of that were. So he was naturalized. He was playing in China and was naturalized, and therefore defected. Can we just use the correct terminology? He defected to China. Okay, like Tucker Carlson, he defected to a foreign <laughs> nation. He is now an advocate for a hostile foreign power. Okay, so I don't know. I mean, look, there uh, there are probably listeners who know more about that than I do, but um, uh, yeah. So have we had how is there has Congress looked at this? Have we had a HUAC meeting on this? <laughs> Maybe he is ethnically Chinese. Is that possible? His name is Kyle oh, he's Anderson. Citizen. He's a Chinese citizen, so he was naturalized. Uh, okay, so with his naturalization complete, he uh, okay. Let's see here. With his naturalization process complete, U.S.-born basketball player Kyle Anderson is now a Chinese citizen, eligible to represent his adopted country. On the international stage, born in New Jersey, San Antonio Spurs, Minnesota Timberwolves, became an eligible candidate due to uh, for CBA's overseas talent search due to his family lineage. His mother's grandfather was Chinese, so his great grandfather uh, was Chinese. So the, again, there's this family. Um, let me think. Yeah, well, I don't hold with that. Okay, what were we talking about? I have no idea how we got onto this. <laughs> you did it though. No, this is not what I wanted to talk about. I, I did, in fact, want to hijack the conversation and talk about something. Oh, you wanted to talk about Archbishop Pallia. Mariana pub- Mazzucato. Ma- Mariana Mazzucato. Oh, how did we is, get from is, there to basketball players in China? I never mind. Because she's in no, 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 no. We're not going to do it again. We're <laughs> going to get back on track. Mariana Mazzucato was criticized. Uh, she, she was appointed to the Pontifical Academy for Life in 2022. She's an economist. She's worked with the UN. She's been an advisor to various governments. Um, and uh, she she was criticized because um, apparently before she had been appointed to the Pontifical Academy of Life, she for life, she had at some point retweeted a comic or a drawing, an illustration, a comic which, in some ways, seemed to represent a pro-choice position. And so she was asked, um, "Do you a member of the?" Pontifical Academy for Life, do you have pro-choice views? And, you know, do you think that that's incongruous with your membership in the Pontifical Academy for Life? And her answer, I don't know if you watched her answer, but her answer was very interesting because 
She 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 didn't say what her can views I, were. I was like, can said, I just like, take a guess? And she neither confirmed nor denied, Senator. Right. Yeah. She said, like, I'm an academic, this is a quote, I'm an academic, I'm an economist, I've never written an op-ed, a blog, a journal article, or a book that has a, even had the word abortion or religion in it, she said. She said, I can't believe that you're here, this journalist who asked her about this. You, you should be interacting with what we've just said at this press conference and what our expertise is and what we'll be talking about at the conference. Now, first of all, I have a real objection to people telling journalists what they should be doing, especially at the Vatican, you know, where I think the question is a totally fair and valid one. But she said, it's not a fair and valid one. The only thing you should be reporting about is the thing that we tell you you should be reporting about. And then she said, look, I've never said anything particularly pro-choice. And then she said, look, the reason the Holy Father put me on this thing is because I am focused on uh, economics in a way that is, this is a quote, redesigning the economy so it's good for humanity, it's good for people all over the world, not just in the global north. She said, 4.5 billion people, more than half of the world's population lack full access to essential health services. She pointed out that oh, more than 2 billion people live without access to safely managed water, that children die all around the world every day from diseases caused by polluted water. And all of that, all of that is true. So then she said to this journalist, you know, wouldn't it be great if your newspaper and all these other journalists would ask me about that instead of asking me this, me as an economist, what I think about abortion. But th what she was effectively saying is my work as an economist which is in some way connected in my mind to the common good of human flourishing has nothing to do with my views on abortion. And I find that to be astounding. Um, you know, the notion that you can say, I have a view about what human flourishing is, but but what I think about abortion has nothing to do with that is astounding to me because, of course, abortion, what you think about abortion and the legality of abortion has to do with what you think about Laws related to family structure, laws related to family support, laws related to workplace protections, all, all kinds of things. Women face, in many circumstances all around the world, pressure from governments, from employers, from partners to undergo abortion. And if you want to talk about economics, which contribute to human flourishing, what you think about that is in, essentially related to a whole set of important questions. So I, I found it astounding that someone who's a member of the Pontifical Academy for Life could effectively punt and say, how dare you ask me about abortion? But Ed, what do you think? Um, that is that is a staggering position to take, although I would say her reaction as you've characterized it, if that is a fair and accurate representation of how she responded to the question, the the dicastery for communication should spend some sort of its $38 million budget or sorry, 38 million <laughs> euro budget and put her on staff because she sounds like she'd fit in right around there. <laughs> well, you know, it's, in, it is very interesting because apart from what she said about abortion, this notion, the only place I ever hear this is at the Vatican. And I've heard it myself. I've been, this has been said to me at the Vatican, you, you're a journalist. You shouldn't be writing about the thing you're asking questions about. You should be writing about the thing that we think is important. This is, in a certain way, does fit in. Maybe it's a European attitude. I don't know. But in a certain way, it does fit in with a Vatican approach to communications, where I have asked, as recently as the Synod on Synodality, questions directly related to the thing, and then been told, That's you know, not the question you, you should be asking. Yeah, this. that's not the question you should be asking. You should be asking about these sound bites that I've just given you. And maybe you could ask me how to spell the words in the sound bites and then write them down for me, because that's what we want you to be doing. It's a sort of extremely instrument, uh, entitled, instrumentalized idea of what media is well, if i had know, a 38 million euro budget i'd be feeling pretty entitled and smug too but <laughs> <laughs> that's neither here so, nor there to answer your original question it is it, it, it is it is lunatic on its face to suggest that one's opinion on abortion first of all that one can't one could not have an opinion on abortion and have any serious engagement with the practice of economics or that one has any serious engagement with the subject of economics and that your 
that either your views on economics don't inform your views on abortion or vice versa, because it's not possible to study economics in any, in any serious way or present them or think about a reimagining of the global economy without talking about demographics. And right. it is the inescapable demographic reality in the world today is the abortion rate in different parts of the world. Like that is the, the entire, um, I mean, you mentioned she had a, um, some sort of role at the UN. So, I mean, it seems to me that she didn't have to like her retweet or TikTok or whatever it was you said she did that got people to think, oh, she might be in favor of abortion. If they let you in the door at the UN, you're a Malthusian as far as I can tell. Um, the UN is evil and should be stopped. But the you know the, 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 there's there's an entire global economic agenda part of what Pope Francis has rightly on occasion called um, you know ideological colonization aimed at just like well we have to shove abortion and contraception down the throat of Africa because we have to stop uh -huh. them having all these children we have to stop the Africans yep. breeding it's going to seriously impact my quality of life and you know my mm -hmm. ability to strip mine their force for cobalt for my next iPhone and my next Prius. You know, the which, by the way, this is just a quick aside. But do you know that one of the that the, one of the largest um, repositories of rare earth minerals uh, in the world was just found in the great state of Wyoming, which could which uh, I just read about in the Wall Street Journal last night threatens Ed to radically transform and shift the global economy. Uh, it's, I it's, don't think it's it probably will. the most interesting scientific discovery. It, Not yet. It very well could. It very well could, but no. it will be a there'll be a long lead time because the preferred way for companies like. Um, Apple, Tesla, you know, those companies, the popular ones in Silicon Valley, uh, to get to get the rare earth minerals out of the ground is to tie a rope around the waist of, you know, a small African child and send them down a mud mine. Um, yes. And I don't think we'll be allowed to do that in Wyoming. No. My suspicion uh, is- Although labor laws are not, you know, what they are in other, some other places, but- um, really, you have you, you can it, have child labor law. You can have child labor in mines in Wyoming. I, I think if you classify country. it as agriculture, I think if you classify it as <laughs> agriculture, we're agriculture. not actually mining rare earth. We're farming <laughs> them. <laughs> we're trying to what we're trying we to do is we're trying to clear this land for our cattle farm. Right. And yeah, right. We, well, we need to clear this land it's for our cattle. Kind and we of just like need to truffle all hunting. Stuff. Actually, it's very right, much exactly. like truffle hunting. <laughs> That's right. This is a family ranch, and we just need to get all this stuff out of the way so that we can better. Okay, this maybe out. that'll happen. Anyway, so no. To answer mm -hmm. your question, is it's absurd uh, to suggest that the subject of abortion and of someone's views on it could be parceled out and away from their economic philosophy. It was. It's preposterous. It's absolutely preposterous. It is preposterous. They they no doubt will fit right in both at the Dicastery for Communications <laughs> and the Pontifical Academy for Life under Archbishop Pallia. I mm. I wish her well in her tenure. That sounds like a match made in heaven. Well, it just well, points I to the fact that the Pontifical Academy for Life has be, been reimagined as a kind of a, a kind of think tank with questions that are tangentially related to the initial sort of development of the you know protection of human life and the proclamation of human dignity into a sort of broad thing. Which, look, I actually think a conversation about a seamless garment approach to human life would be a good idea. Sure, but the, but you the actually have the to believe in the garment seamless garment. <laughs> Right, it has to have a foundation in the fundamental protection of human life from the threat of the threat and brassweight of abortion, and from there, actually, have an incredible grounding point to develop proposals for family-first policy, right. for economic policies right. and, and labor policies, which which support the family rather than undermine it and diminish it. You know, from there, you have so many things. But look, the fact of the matter is, I think everyone can understand this. Employers 
in many ways depend on women's accessibility to abortion. It's not magnanimous that Levi and Strauss wants to give its employees access to abortion tourism. It's cheaper than paying for them to have babies, and it means that they won't be out or demanding pesky things like maternity leave. Corporations lean on on, on liberal abortion policies, permissive abortion policies, not um, – uh, you know, it's not altruism on their part. They, they they rather build that into their economic models. And if you can't talk about that, what is the Pontifical Academy for Life really doing? Exactly. You know how you know um, the country with the highest um, abortion rate in the world is. What's that? Russia. Yes, that's right. I'd forgotten that. Yeah, um, incredibly high abortion rate there, and for all the reasons you say, because it's part of their social economic model. Which um, I wonder if they took Tucker Carlson to an abortion clinic these while he was things touring Moscow. De- these things demand prayer. Uh, these things point to the kind of prayer that our world needs. And um, this is an invitation. I just like to say that this week's episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by an invitation for college age men to spend a summer in prayer uh, through the. Catholic Pueblo Revival Paid Internship Program. Young men, if you want to spend a summer praying for the salvation of the world and, the, and its conversion, um, praying for the holiness of our church, praying for our transformation and conversion through transcendent and beautiful liturgy, consider the Catholic Pueblo Revival Paid Internship Program in Gallup, New Mexico. You can apply at sanctuaryrosarywalk.org. You can find that in the show notes. This week's episode of the Pillar Podcast is as with all episodes, is a production of Pillar Media, Ned and JD Production. Our executive producer is the great Kate Oliveira, who is working, guys, on a project that Ed and I are so excited about that we're going to tell you about next week that we can't wait to tell you about. It's pretty awesome. You'll hear about it then and lots of other things when we have great Catholic conversation next week on the Pillar Podcast. Adios. Look what you just made me do. 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 Look what you just made me do.